Welcome listeners to the Love Mia Vita podcast. This is Jerry DiPiano, CEO of Fem Pharma and the sponsor of the Love Mia Vita podcast. And today I'm here with Patricia Fennell, our guest, and we're going to discuss the issues of chronic illness and how to live your best life with chronic illness. It's always something. <laughs> Patricia Fennell is an MSW, LCSW, and CEO of Albany Health Management Associates. She's a clinician, research scientist, educator, and author specializing in chronic illness, post-viral syndromes, trauma, forensics, hospice, and global health, and so much more. Patricia, welcome to the Love Mia Vita podcast. Hi, welcome to Love Mia Vita podcast, the podcast, Two Women, Four Women. I'm Jerry DiPiano, women's healthcare advocate and founder of Fem Pharma. I'm joined by Dr. Deborah Saltman, physician, researcher, the thinker, and medical director. Thanks, Jerry. I'm really proud to be a part of Fem Pharma's commitment to keeping women healthy and safe and this series of podcasts. Together, we're providing solutions for women who care about living their best lives at any age. As trailblazers, we aim to break down the myths and provide the truths about everything women want and care about. Imagine that. We asked women what they want, and we're about to deliver it. By the way, we hope to entertain you, and that's no BS. Over the coming months, We'll be speaking with experts about topics that matter, mental and physical well-being, and what more could be done. We will push our experts to give you answers that are real. So send us your questions, and here's to loving our lives. We, uh, we'd love to hear more about you, your background, your journey, and how you developed the fennel four-phase model and how you've worked with men and women, but today's focus will be specifically on women yep. who are living with and hopefully thriving in the face of chronic illness. So welcome once again. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm so happy to do this. Uh, it, it's, it's fun and I think a, kind of an especial treat to do it with another uh, woman-founded, woman-owned, woman-CEO uh, uh, organization. Um, there's not a lot of us out there, but there's a whole lot more than there used to be. So I, I'm, that, that's part of the fun of it for me. Um, so, okay, a bit about me. Um, well, there's a lot of ways I can talk about that, but um, I think one way that would be really helpful is one thing that, that is, is not in my bio, at least the one we just read, uh, but I don't uh, hide it anymore. And I used to when I started out a long time ago. I'm 65 and a half years old. And looking and, fabulous, I might add. Well, thank you very much, and so do you. <laughs> When I started out as a, uh, a researcher, that it, this was uh, just around the HIV years, and um, 
people were just beginning to talk about themselves as being patients and clinicians and scientists. That was the really old days. And I learned early on that if I disclosed uh, that I was a patient, um, it was much harder for my work to be taken seriously. And that and the HIV movement really helped change that in terms of uh, those who were afflicted uh, speaking up. So over time, I've had more leeway after everything I've done and the work I've done, et cetera. At this point, I can pretty much say anything I want. <laughs> um, it's a blessing that comes with age, right? That's correct. That is absolutely correct. As, as friends of mine in the, uh, in the music industry say, you've made your bones, you can do whatever. So I, I, can, I can be more open about it, and it uh, but it allows the women and the men who come after me to also be more open that we can wear the all of these different hats. It's possible. Um, but in my youth, if you were somebody who was severely ill, the likelihood of uh, resources being put into you, being afforded for you, it, it was much less likely to happen. So with that said, uh, when I was uh, 14, 15 years old, um, well, I've had, again, chronic illness of, of various diagnosis since I was a kid, but one of the more important ones is that I've had sepsis at least three times and on multiple occasions didn't, almost didn't make it as they say. And one of those times I was uh, 15. And so I only went to high school for a year and uh, got my GED and then went off to, a few years later, went off to college. So I uh, had to cope early on with having a, disabilities, a variety of disabilities, um, but also to be a student and to uh, begin to learn. And my, uh, I adored music and all of that was wonderful, but I discovered science and science won. <laughs> curious about music. So maybe as an aside, can you share with us uh, how your passion for music manifested itself? Did you play an instrument? Did you sing? I was very interested in the piano and I was very interested in classical voice and in particular things like French art song and German leader and those kinds of things. And um, But I was self-supporting. And as I said, I wasn't particularly well um, and it would have required relocating to New York City and doing all that sort of thing, which I would have been open to. But then I, I, there was so much I had missed in high school and I discovered science. We are so thankful for that pivot because we wouldn't have you in this, huh. in this capacity to work with all of us who yes. have various and and they, and, chronic illnesses. And the, and the way it's worked out is about 15 years, I, I maintained my re relationships in music world. And uh, through all that, I kept the music major when I went on to did the science stuff, I kept those affiliations. And then about ooh, 18 years ago now, um, uh, some of the, the gentlemen in jazz said, well, you know, you've made your bones, uh, to use that expression again, come back out. Uh, so I've produced other people's work. Um, I've worked, I don't use the same name because it's very confusing for people. Um, but I've always argued that what made me a good uh, hospice worker, uh, what makes me a good scientist, hopefully a good clinician, is what also hopefully makes me a good improviser on the bandstand, is that you have to really listen to people. You have to really be part of a team 
and you have to have rock solid fundamentals and then you have to be able to fly. Um, and that that's, you know, improvisation, those skills are very important in creative thinking. That, um, that hospice work, so you and I shared in our last, um, the last time we chatted, um, we shared that we had both spent some time working with hospice. I did so when I was a college student and taught me a lot about living. So working yes. with individuals who were in palliative, having palliative care and facing end of life issues taught me a lot about life. So yes. help us to, uh, to, to think through that a little bit. Um, sure. that's that, really that, important. Yes, and, and, I, and it was in hospice, during my time in hospice that I began to develop my model. Um, I was very attracted to hospice because uh, along with my own illness issues, unfortunately, a lot of people in my family also had significant illness issues. So I was no stranger to death. Um, and um, I was really interested in the work. Um, I was very fortunate to be included in, in America's early hospice movement, which was like, you know, early, mid, late 70s, early 80s. I was kind of second generation of that. Um, right after Kubler-Ross and those folks. And um, it was some of the best training I ever had in my life for anything. Again, people who were, a lot of people, in, interestingly, in hospice were artists. You know, that was part of their background. There was sort of that similarity of being able to think creatively, work cooperatively. Um, and part of what I took from that experience, along with some of the best training in my life, was that if we could treat the dying this well, why couldn't we treat the living this well? That's and, and that, and, and that if that was the case, then, and I began to, that's when I first started to develop, I was developing some models for hospice work around working with teams and, and things like that. That was a lot of fun. Um, but I was, I, I had started my private practice. I had gone, I had been in the PhD program. I had gone back to school, et cetera. And, and um, anyway, I started my private practice while I was there, and um, I was starting to get these chronically ill folks, and because I could sort things out um, a bit, um, and the model started to be to be developed. And part of what I understood was that you know the Kubler-Ross model is brilliant and absolutely applicable, but the problem is that somebody has to die, and uh, chronically ill folks keep living. Um, and so the joke amongst the chronically ill, be it, you know, whether I'm talking to another patient or referring to myself, the good news is you're not going to die. And the bad news is you're not going to die. So how do we uh, move forward? And I began to understand that if you're looking at chronic illness, the good news is being that you're not going to die, then by definition, you're not going to be cured. By definition, you're not going to be cured. Um, you might, subsequent folks might be in subsequent time frames, but uh, the likelihood is whatever, whether it's diabetes or MS or whatever it is, you're going to be living with this over a period of time. So how do we develop frameworks that we choose life, but we don't diminish the suffering and that you really have to be able to embrace both? And one of the things that um, I learned in my hospice years that this was... Um, like a lot of American hospices, they are, they were, are, maybe still are, less so now, very Christian. But we had um, a group of Muslim folks who, who worked in our hospice, Sufis, in fact, which was really interesting. 
And um, so as one of them said, um, you know, when your joy is here with you, your grief is behind you on your bed. It's asleep upon your bed. And so it really reinforced for me what I had already been experiencing, that in order for me to be generative, to choose life, I had to at the same time acknowledge on any given day the losses and the suffering that I was experiencing. So for me, part of thriving is, is if to, to here's another reference, to, to, to quote uh, Zorba the Greek, you have to embrace the whole catastrophe. Right. And it's, it's all of it. I had a wonderful mentor at the time um, who was a Jungian. I did about 18 years of training and analysis with her. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's learning to embrace these contradictions. It's both. I, 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 la I, I laugh because I keep thinking back to one of my favorite comedians, um, Gilda Radner. And, you know, yep. if we could have quotes around what I said in the beginning of the podcast. It's always something. Right. How you deal with the something right. is, you know, the, the whirling dervish of all of what happens when you get a diagnosis of whatever it is. Yeah, you can keep moving forward, right? It, it might be baby steps, one right. small step at a time. But yeah, Gil, obviously Gilda uh, lost her battle with ovarian cancer. But um, boy, that phrase is just indelible. Well, and in that, and, you know, Gilda, and I think that was from that, that uh, was it when she was being Rosanna, Rosanna Dana, she would yes. turn to Jane Curtin and say, Jane, it's always something. Yes. Was that it? I think yes, that yes. <laughs> That, that, that was the reference. That's it. And, and it's the, see, what's interesting is that we are the first generation um, in terms of a large cohort of, of women, of people, but of certainly of women to live this long. And so in my grandmother's generation, um, in 1922 in Albany, New York, the average lifespan is one of my favorite statistics locally, um, regionally, is was about 52 years. And now the average lifespan, COVID aside, because that's changed things a bit nationally, globally, um, is about 78 years, 79 years, depending on race and SES and those different kinds of things. That's not evolution. That's public health. That's immunization. That's a whole variety of things. So the likelihood is you combine that with, in the mid 90s, according to JAMA, half the US population had a chronic illness then. So increasingly we will be alive and we will have chronic illnesses and not just one, we will have collections of them. And the issue is for me, it's not about cure, it's about integration of the experiences so, so that I am not Schrogren's that happens to have a person. I'm a, I'm a person who, among many other things, has Schrogren's. I have many things. That's just one of them. So we, we, have, a, we have a number of listeners um, that will have um, cancer. And yes. we, we call cancer a chronic illness. Um, we women now. and men are living with cancer. That's correct. Living longer with cancer. Yes. So it yes. is a chronic illness. Yes. Increasingly so across cancers. Yes. And it's not, it's cancer is not a monolithic 
there was a time, you know, 30 years ago, right up until I'd say the last 10 years or so, 10 or 15 years, that we thought of cancer um, as being a disease. It is not a disease. It is many diseases. And some of them we've made many more advances with in terms of how long people are living. And some of them not quite so much, but we're, we're you know, it's, it's progressing. And the same is true in the auto, autoimmune diseases. They are not, you know, it, there's, there's many, Sjogren's has a huge overlap with um, uh, lupus, with scleroderma. So when we're assessing people and working with people chronically, um, we do a lot of, of, of uh, assessment about not only uh, what conditions they currently have, but what are in their families, et cetera, because many of these conditions have an hereditary aspect. Um, and with the understanding that we're not just looking for a thing to treat, there's, there's a variety of things that can be going on concurrently. So you developed, so what, when we talk about this four phase model, mm. you, you shared with us that you modeled this model off of the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross uh, model. Brilliant. And for those that don't, that aren't familiar with okay. Kubler-Ross, perhaps you could just share with them um, who she is and what she established. Well, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, this brilliant psychiatrist who had, was a triplet and had survived the ravages of the Second World War um, and, uh, and the aftermath of that time. Um, and I will fast forward through her life, but she's definitely a pioneer and somebody worth uh, understanding and at least give her a Google <laughs> um, and see what Wikipedia is saying about her. But she developed this model and it's, it's, it's kind of in the common lexicon now, and I'm not going to get the stages correctly, but she talks about stages of grief and the stages of grief included um, uh, denial, acceptance, rejection, anger, and I don't, I don't have them in the right uh, sequence there. But we tend to now have a general understanding colloquially, certainly in our culture, that when people are, are faced with grief, whether it's about their own bodies or they lose someone or they lose a job, whatever it is, that um, they will go through this process. So what I realized as, and I was in my 20s then, when I realized as a youngster, and I think of that as definitely being a youngster, is um, that that was describing a psychological process um, and that there was more to the psychological process. And what I also understood being a social worker was that we were part of systems. And what I also understood was that that model had uh, an emphasis on that there was, there was a process that ended, that it was a finite process. And, and I, I, my understanding, and I never met her, but my understanding is that she certainly didn't see it as being that finite herself at all. But so when I developed the four, my four phase model, it's phases and not stages, because there's an appreciation that we can go through these phases more than once. Remember, the, the person isn't per, per se dying. And you might have get diagnosed with cancer today. Um, you might get diagnosed with a pelvic syndrome tomorrow or four months from now. You might get diagnosed with a thyroid disorder. Any of those things can happen. While concurrently, you may lose a job or someone else might get ill or any number of things can occur. So that 
this experience is not just happening to you psychologically. In each of the phases, and there's four of them, so there's um, crisis, stabilization, resolution, and integration. And in what and at each of those four phases, I'm looking at three domains. Here's here's the systems part that I'm looking at what's going on with that person physically in each phase. What's going on with them psychologically and or spiritually. In addition to, say, the kind of grief process that Kubler-Ross talked about and what's going on with them socially. What's going on in their workplace? What's going on in their home lives? What's are you know they're married? They're not married. They're living with somebody. They're not. They have kids. They don't. You know any their friends. Any number of things, and that it's within that context that the person is chronically ill. I think of it as it takes a village to be chronically ill. You're you are alive. You are continuing to be alive, and um, the culture can benefit from you, um, and the culture is interacting with you at all times. Particularly when a whole variety of other people, you know, there, lots of other folks are chronically ill too, at least well over half of the population and growing. So we look at these three domains at each phase. So if you're dealing with cancer, then socially, how are you coping with the other people in your life? So one of the things that we've encountered in the crisis phase is that everybody's a bit in shock in the crisis phases. As people begin to move into stabilization, this is where on the social level, some of the people around the patient, as they begin to stabilize, as they're beginning to make sense of their diagnosis and the treatments and the, and the after effects of the treatments, the long-term effects of the treatments, because there are plenty of them frequently, um, medications, you know, being what they are, um, that uh, this is where often family members, children, spouses, whomever might say, I signed up for better or for worse, but I didn't sign up for chronically ill. We don't get training. This is part of why we're so here at AHMA, we're so interested in, we teach physicians and clinicians of all stripe and patients that uh, to understand chronic disease from a phase perspective, because we don't get taught about chronicity in college generally. We don't get taught about it in high school. And it's just beginning to be really be tackled in clinical settings. So three, those three domains at each phase, and then people go through these phases. They have a crisis phase where the experience is like they're overwhelmed and they're trying to sort out how they're going to live with this, how their body is coping with it psychologically what they're going through. They can be thrown into all kinds of chaos as a result of it, potentially, depending on what occurs. It can be, illness can be traumatic in and of itself. Socially, those around them can also be in chaos. But at some point, with usually with help, typically, people can begin to stabilize. And stabilization is carving order out of chaos. Stabilization is the patient saying, oh, that's right, after my treatment, Tomorrow and for the next day or two, I might be nauseous or extra fatigued or something like that. Or if they are a chronic fatigue syndrome patient or a long haul COVID patient, they might say, okay, I've already climbed the stairs twice today. I can't do it three more times. I can only do it one more time. They begin to have a context about their symptoms, how they're coping and how those around them are coping with assistance, almost always with assistance, whether it's with your priest, rabbi, best friend, social worker, 
primary physician, whoever it is, hopefully people can then transition into a resolution phase. And with resolution, this is where some really big changes start to take place, where the person begins to have a different kind of integration of, I'm not going to get cured. How do I live with this? How do I still choose life? When I was first writing about it, one of my publishers, um, I think it might have been Oxford, yeah, Oxford Press that said, uh, um, I was, I was, I called it the existential dilemma phase, and they said, "Oh no, you're not. <laughs> you're not called it. Call, no, this is this is dense enough. Thank you very much." And but it's the dark night of the soul. It's it. You begin to have a reckoning with this is who I am now. I I. I can't uh, bicycle anymore. I, there's certain things I can't do anymore, but there's certain things I can. So how do I move forward? How do I choose life? It, and part of that thriving is understanding that we have to meet the dark night of the soul and that what we need respect for and what patients need respect for is not the goal, is not the time at the end of the tunnel. It's the time in the tunnel. And people don't get degrees for that. They don't get awards for that for all of that, um, that silent uh, coping. Now, before we talked today, my phone was starting to blow up. This was part of what I was dealing with as, um, cause we still do, we do physical and forensic stuff. Simone Biles and the other gymnasts have been um, testifying before Congress today. And they're giving, I believe as the Washington Post said, an unsparing account of specifically what they went through. It is impressive. It is very impressive. Um, those women deserve credit for the time in the tunnel, what they had to do, what they had to experience. And as she said, as she testifies, she will be living with this with the rest of her life. So the issue is how you, you don't get over that kind of trauma. It's not that kind of linear stage experience. You get through it. You integrate it. So it's, so it's a part of your experience. You own that experience. So there's some thoughts for you. <laughs> so, so we think about, you know, the, the techniques that, that might be helpful to get to that point, right? We, we don't, when people say in the past, they don't, they don't understand things like PTSD, by the way, we know post-traumatic stress disorder is chronic. It's a chronic That's right. illness. That's right. You don't get over post-traumatic stress, but you can get through it. And what are, what are some- I would argue you learn to integrate it. You learn to integrate it better. Obviously you're the expert. Are there specific techniques that you are, can you give us a few techniques sure. that you recommend? So, so, um, so, I, so, I, so within, uh, uh what, you know, we have, I have a 180 hours of curriculum, right? So there's lots of techniques. But with that said, one of the things I learned in my uh, physics was that, uh, you know, there are, there are models and I, I love my model. I think it's nifty. And I think the tech, we have techniques that go from phase to phase. Let's see. So like in this, in this, in this tome, okay, this textbook <laughs> that we use, right? This one I wrote that, um, I think that our techniques are very good. However, a lot of other techniques are good too. 
And so part of how we look at the phase model is what kind of techniques besides ours, okay, are good phase by phase by phase by phase, right? So um, for example, in the crisis phase, techniques that use cognitive behavioral therapy can be really helpful, super helpful. Um, in phase two, when people begin to stabilize, there are certain CBT techniques that are helpful, but there are a lot of other approaches that can be too. And one of the things that we argue is that it's really helpful to match intervention to phase. I was talking with a young woman yesterday who has, she's post COVID, her mom has just passed away and she has an infant and she is beside herself. And uh, she's not dealing well with the medications that have been prescribed for her, a whole variety of things she's really suffering. And so we're trying to find for her, in addition to working with us, with me, kind of being project manager, if you will, is who on the who uh, clinically can additionally help her? Well, she's started to work with a bereavement counselor about her mom, and she shared that uh, what the bereavement counselor, which the bereavement counselor is coming up with very good strategies. I agree with the strategies, but she's having a terrible time doing them. Now she's having a terrible time doing them, partly because of where she's at physically. She's physically and not in good shape. I won't get into specifically how, but so, and again, it's not one crisis at a time either. You know, there's several things going on while she's trying to breastfeed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and she has a, a little kid as well. So timing is everything. Timing is everything. You have to match the intervention to the phase. She's not stabilized enough yet to do her bereavement work. She needs more time. So some techniques that can help her deal, manage her anxiety, manage, and this is where CBT is very helpful, and I would argue that some of ours are too. And part of our orientation is she's having a lot of trouble sleeping, say, for example. And part of our orientation is um, after everything she's just been through, it's appropriate to have trouble sleeping. So part of it is helping people manage the discomfort what do we medicate? What do we not medicate? What things make more sense to tackle when somebody is in crisis phase? But crisis phase is containing the crisis, making sure, you know, I think of it as God's world and Caesar's world. In, in uh, well, that's, I didn't make that up, that's Shakespeare. But, <laughs> but the, point, the point being that before we can get to God's world, and how she's going to integrate this further and meaning in her life and what is, et cetera. Right now we have to make sure that she gets the piggly wiggly and that she has the capacity to do that. So in the crisis phase is, are we eating? Are we sleeping? Are we resting? Are we feeding, are we feeding the kids? Is the place relatively clean or not? So it's, it's kind of that kind of crisis management technique piece and giving people the patience to do that and helping them with their clinicians. Frequently what we've seen over the years with specialties is that the primary care physician, they are not set up to help people navigate these kinds of issues. 80 years ago, you could have a family physician who would come to your house and would say, this is what you're gonna feed the baby, and this is, this is what you're gonna do for yourself, and you're gonna risk this much, and by the way, you have an aunt here and a mom here and whomever who's also going to help you. Now she's trying to get uh, uh, care from, she's got a very good primary, 
but the primary has anywhere between nine and 13 minutes to spend with her. So part of it is helping developing a strategy for folks to utilize different kinds of techniques that are out there, but matching them to the phase that they're in. Now, as people begin to move into the, into the, we get them stabilized and we use our functional areas. I'll come back to that to help people understand um, how crucial that is in stabilization. When we get them stabilized, looking at their functional areas, then we can begin to talk about um, the resolution. And the resolution phase is this is a really good time to use techniques that have all to do with what is your faith structure. Um, I, this, this is where larger systems of knowing help people develop meaning about their suffering and about their life. I firmly believe that if you don't have a narrative, a story, however you construct it, about why you, why are you surviving? Why are you doing this? How, how did this, how did this uh, happen to you? And then why do you continue to choose to go forward? That's the time for that. You can't hit people with, it's all going to be okay and there's a reason for this, why you're going through it when they're in the crisis phase. You lose them. They, they can't keep up. So you have to bring, in the phase, in the Fennel 4 phase model, you bring individuals through each phase and you use specific techniques in each phase, not we necessarily do. with, and it, it sounds very individualized. It's very individualized. So we have... Um, a, part of what we do in an assessment is we, and, and people come to us at all different stages, all different, excuse me, all different phases, stages of their life and phases of their experiences. And in that regard, we assess them um, and decide what phase they're in. Usually we get a referral from another clinician, though, you know, people find us, but usually it's from another clinician. We work a lot with, particularly during, during COVID now, we work a lot with clinicians themselves who are physicians, nurses, psychologists, whomever, you know, around the country, wherever. And um, we assess what phase they're in. We assess them uh, for their functional areas, and I will come back to that in one second. And then based on what phase they're in, we take a look at all their pre and comorbidities, physical, emotional, what they've been through, and that helps us tailor for them um, how, to move, how to move forward. Um, and we help them sort that out with their other care providers. So whether it's their primary, um, their specialists, etc. But frequently we get tapped because their specialist is either consulting with us or um, that's something that, that I get asked, we get asked to do a fair amount is to consult on cases. So in the functional areas, this is, this is something that um, I make uh, sort of mini scientists out of everybody, um, and uh, I teach them how to collect data at, at their at whatever you know point and understanding what that means. And uh, at each, what I teach them is on any given day we need an assessment of the following. And and I, I get my I, I I tease them and I say if you want to understand about the functional area where do you get these functional areas I say well. This isn't exactly true, but it works. I say, if you go to Walgreens or you go into CVS or whatever your particular drugstore is, wherever you are in the country or the world, then you'll find these functional areas. There'll be an aisle dedicated to each one of these functional areas. So you're going to have a functional area of pain, 
you're going to have a functional area of fatigue. You're going to have a functional area of sleep. You're going to have a functional area of ambulation. You're going to have a functional area of cognition, how you're thinking. You're going to have a functional area that deals with bowel and bladder. And you're going to have a functional area of sexuality, men and women's. And you're going to have a functional area of mood. And the functional area of mood, by and large, is in the back of the store. And you have to give them a script in order to get what you want from them, (laughs) usually, but not exclusively. And these functional areas, whether you are chronically ill in in some uh, presenting fashion now, or you're, as I like to think of it, currently a civilian, though at some point you won't be a civilian, um, these functional areas rule the world. Everybody has them. And I teach folks how to begin to collect data, and I may or may not use that language, but how to collect data on how they're doing with these areas every day. And then teach them how to work with them and begin to teach them, and this is part of what we're developing for an app, et cetera, but because we've been doing it analog for 25 years, teaching people how to look at these areas, especially the ones that are most important to them, because not everybody has a bowel or a bladder issue. Not everybody necessarily has a mood issue, but the ones that are essential for them, keeping track of their cycle, et cetera, and looking at that data. And when we look at that data every day, we can look at that in the context of your chronic illness, whether it's post breast cancer, whether it's MS, whether it's diabetes, and we can begin to make decisions about Caesar's world. Can you, how, if you slept this poorly, like the youngster said to me yesterday, I only slept three hours, I this or that, should you be driving today? Just a question, okay? Um, how much pain are you in? How is your ambulation? These things help us make decisions then, how much fatigue we have, about how we're going to use our energy, which is limited, which is limited. You know, the old joke, you you can't have it all. You have to make choices. You have to make choices. And women have been profoundly pressured to do it all. And we can't, something will suffer, and it's usually us. Yeah. Like my mom says, uh, you know, you need to take care of yourself. Visiting her, she's 90 years old. She's in palliative care. And, um, you know, she's she's at the end of life. She knows she's at the end of life, but she keeps reminding me to take care of yourself. And um, it's it, it sounds cliche, but it really is true. Exactly. And, and, and I think of it as uh, one of the musicians wrote a tune for me because he, he called it uh, PTU. Because uh, I was joking that I have only so many, you know, basing it on BTUs, British thermal units, that I only have so many Patricia thermal units. And how am I going to spend them today? We teach people how to begin to evaluate. This gives them context about understanding how they are. It gives them, it functions in many ways. Cognitively, it functions like a mnemonic device. Typically, most of us can't remember how we were three days ago, let alone two weeks ago. But that's the kind of information that we need over time to make decisions about, is this medication helping you or not? Is it making you worse? So we begin, that's, that's the God's world size of it. And, and we look at those functional areas phase 
by phase by phase. When we put treatment groups together, it's less important what diagnosis someone has, whether they're diabetic or MS or they're, you know, you name it or cancer, whatever it is, then where are you in your functional areas? Are, are, are you, are, are they really high? You're not sleeping, you're, you're fatigued, you're in pain, your bowel is all messed up, which it frequently is, you know, the, this, that, or the next thing. If that's true, then your level of functioning, you're, you know, we have them scale it out on a scale of one, you know, Likert scaling, like scale of one to five, you know, seven, whatever. And then they begin to understand it and you begin to teach them. Are you a seven today? Are you a four today? You know, this sort of thing. That's how we group folks together. And as each individual, I would imagine they, they are their own baseline, having run a number of clinical trials uh, in women's health. We help, right away, I help folks establish a baseline. Right. They don't necessarily understand. But, you know, uh, women are really good at this. <laughs> if you ask women about their babies, um, now, I don't have children, but I've helped with a lot of, you know, I think of myself as like one of those aunties in a um in a wolf pack or an auntie in uh in, in in with the elephants or an auntie with the lionesses you know it's like it's i hang around I, i'm i'm there to help and uh they have a really good sense of how these babies are over time you know they know it's well you know he did this but now he's not doing that or she's not doing this or she's that so they are trending they are projecting they have an established baseline and they're projecting. They don't use that language, but you can teach folks. So knowing your baseline is super important because you got to know your baseline and, and your baseline, if you establish it in chronic, chronic illness, your baseline may have changed. So my baseline 10 years ago, before I had an autoimmune disease, ah, that's right. And, baseline and, is today. and thus the importance of the phases because your baseline does change over time. And, you know, arbitrarily, every six months, every year, we recalibrate the baseline. We may not call it recalibrating the baseline. And we keep that data. And you keep it over time. And then, you know, depending on their age and what they're going through, like, with, for example, you know, we have forms, et cetera. And to a young woman, we might say, you know, I want to know, you know, numbers for where you are. In the, I want to know what day of your cycle you're in. For the women, you know, like myself, how many years are you postmenopausal? What is this? Are you dry? Are you not? Are you this? Are you that? You know, and, and how is it impacting you? So when women go through their fourth, fifth, and sixth decade, so as we think about whether it's an autoimmune disease or whether it's diabetes, cardiovascular disease, or cancer, so right. with increasing age, you tend to see um, the incidence and prevalence of these conditions rise, yes. right? And that, yes. so they are also faced with hormonal transitions. Absolutely. Exacerbate this. So we cannot, um, when, when we think about this at Fem Pharma, we know that you shouldn't treat men and women equally when it comes Absolutely to not. Absolutely not. And I don't mean that there's, um, that we should think about this as gender inequity and that we should, that we're male bashing. This is really about oh, not at all about gender inequity because sex does matter, and I don't mean sex as in intercourse. I mean that your the organs that you were born with and the hormones that you were born with will largely impact 
the course of diseases and disease. No question about that. I, I am in total agreement, which is why, you know, the majority of people with chronic conditions, um, as it stands, are women. So the majority of my patients over time have been women, not exclusively, but have been women. And, and where, you know, when I'm teaching chronic illness, chronic conditions and sexuality, part of the way, and please contradict me at any point, but well, first of all, I say the most important sexual partner you'll ever have in your life is you. No one is going to be a better sex partner to you than you. Absolutely. Promise. Abs absolutely. <laughs> and every guest that's on this podcast agrees. Yes. You, most important. My, my life, Mia Vita. My life. Me. That's right. There it is. There it is. I see in plenty of young women perimenopausal changes in their 30s. I mean, it's, it, it, it can start very early, but by their late 30s, now, and if they've had children, that's a game changer yet again, how many children they've had or pregnancies or both. And then moving into their 40s, every five years, it's a new deal. Not just on the outside, but on the inside, it's a new deal. So it's interesting that you that you see a disproportionate number of women, and we know that in in the case of autoimmune diseases, the autoimmune diseases do disproportionately affect women. Absolutely, uh, depression disproportionately affects women. Uh, so we so we were not totally surprised by that, and that I'm assuming that has an impact on the way in which you counsel and apply the fennel phase for. Yeah. So we live longer, but we have more chronic illnesses. And not surprising. So we look at the, uh, when we look at epidemiology, so, in, so when we look at uh, epidemiology and we look at women's health and women's health care, um, it's the reason that I started Fem Pharma after working in the multinational pharmaceutical industry, because we can't exclusively look at um, reproductive issues, right? So right. you think about the, de the definition of women's health. It's the diseases that disproportionately affect women are all women's health issues and they must be addressed. Yes. Not necessarily with prescription drugs. We've been yes. working on prescription for a long time, but, but also in alternative ways um, that help women to yes. live longer, live better lives. And I love the, the fennel four phase model. Thank you so much for developing this. And if you're a healthcare practitioner and you're listening into this podcast, I would strongly encourage you to reach out to Patricia. And if you're a woman, doesn't matter whether you're in California or whether you I are in anywhere. Fort Lauderdale. Oh yeah. Patricia is available now that we've become experts on Zoom and Teams and FaceTime. Chronic illness is a woman's issue. Um, chronic illness is a public health issue. Anything that's a public health issue is an economic issue. These concerns that we're addressing, that you're looking at, um, has much broader uh, implications than I think the way it's historically been viewed as, well, she's having women problems. Like it happens in a vacuum. These issues are part of a much larger system. So. Absolutely. And we are the economic driving force. No question. We women are the economic driving force in the world. 
and one only needs to look at the at the data around who controls most of these decisions about health care and what the economic impact of making the choice to include women will do to change our economy. Once we, once we get out of the mindset that men rule, it's really women who rule, women who control the resources because they are the ones that are making decisions. We are way more analytical than our male counterparts. So when we scrutinize a product, we, we really scrutinize it on every level. And then we make the decision as to what, what our partners are using, what our children are using, what it's our that, parents yes, are Yes, absolutely. The, 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 that when I get called from a family, it's by the woman, whether it's for her physical, emotional, whatever needs, family, whatever the, the issues are, or it's, uh, or, but, but she will also call us for the man. When I get called from an organization, it's often, you know, by a woman who who is who is working there. And I find it fascinating in that context to, to just, you know, repeat and be aware that the, the majority of people in medical school now are women. And far and away, currently, the enrollment in uh, college right now is 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 far more women. Um, and that's good, bad, and indifferent, but those are the facts, so. And you've just heard it from another woman who has um, developed, led the um, another organization. There are certainly uh, lots of us that are out there um, and we have to help to bring up that next generation. It sounds like you and are. help each other. Sounds like you are. Um, and we are so excited that you could join us for the Love Mia Vita podcast. Patricia Fennell, thank you so much. It was a pleasure once again having yes, a conversation too. with you. Let's do it again. Um,